God is doing something special in this church. Every church has a unique vision, just like every family is supposed to have a unique vision. And uh, every business is supposed to have a unique vision. You know, people spend a lot of time writing mission statements for their businesses and stuff. It's usually just a pile of garbage that feels good. But in, in the kingdom, it's said that people perish for having a lack of vision. So this is usually the time of year where we all begin to think about what our vision for the year is. I mean, you know what your vision for your life is in general, usually, uh, what God's called you to do. But this is a time when we start to think about how we're applying it. And all kind of wonderful promises get made to God and to men in January. And by February, they're long forgotten. So uh, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that I want to get to. It's in the fifth chapter. But before we get there, I want to tell you a little bit about a newer revelation of this ministry. I've known for a while that God had raised us up for the purpose of seeing his life-changing work displayed in people. I knew that because of the way that he called me, the way that he called Matthew, what he told us to do. I've been a part of other ministries just like you guys have, and their vision was slightly different. And I, I could support it, I could agree with it, but there was something in it that made me want to veer just a little bit to the left or the right. It doesn't make anybody right and us wrong or vice versa. Vision is unique. Well, here's one of the unique things that uh, I think God has, has given us. In life, period, but especially in Christianity, we settle into roles. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of them, what they may be. And we fall into habits that are sometimes godly and sometimes not godly. And people begin to adopt the attitude, well, that's just the way that I am. This is what God's, I mean, this is, this is just me. And expect everybody else to just kind of deal with it. And something unique that God's put in me. I was talking with Brad the other day. One of the first Bible studies I ever did, one of the first revelations I ever got, was if you're not changing your mind, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're not in Christ. You're dead. So having said that, I fully expect that in this ministry... Have you all ever thought about iron sharpening iron? You know, that's a verse we use all the time. Say, so, oh, well, Claire, the Bible says as one man... Uh, or as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and you never think about how that happens. To sharpen two pieces of iron, you have to rub them together until there's serious friction. You have to cause them to collide until pieces fall off. Christians are usually not willing to do that. We pursue peace, uh, or we pursue something in the name of peace that's not God. And here, here's a good example, and I'm just going to talk to you all for a while, and then you know, we'll do what we do in the Word. Maybe I have something to say to Judah. Judah, no, Judah's my son. Let's, maybe I have something to say to David. We had an interaction that was uncomfortable, didn't feel like it was spiritual, and I should say something to David, but in the name of peace, I think, no, I'll just let it go. When the Bible says if one man has something against another, they go to each other before they go to God. Well, what happens with that is I go about my way, uh, a month passes, I think I've forgotten about it until something else happens. And then all of a sudden, I've gunny-sacked these problems that I have with David. They start to rise up, and there's an inordinate response towards David because it's been building over time. I've been amazed in the body of Christ how few times people put into practice what the Word says. For instance, the Bible says you don't entertain an accusation against an elder without two or more witnesses. But if you go to Piccadilly or Luby's or whatever we have around here, today after church, 
you will hear people slandering their pastor and nobody at the table will have the guts to say, hey, friends, stop that. That's not what the Word says because we want to keep the peace. There are times that um, somebody says something to you, gossip-wise or something, and you know it's wrong, but we just kind of let it go because we don't want to make waves. I think that this ministry will make a lot of waves, not outside these walls, but inside the walls because we're going to do whatever it takes for each one of us to grow and say the things that are hard to say. Matthew and I have had this kind of relationship for a long time. I believe it's why God has put us together and now it will move outward. And here's what I think the result will be. And we'll talk about this a lot more in New Year's. I think that it will result in a church full of overcoming people. People that do not live under the burden of some unovercomable obstacle all their life. Where the kind of people that you meet in 20 years have gone by and they said, I always would have liked to have done that, but I just never did. It will produce in us a desire to constantly change, constantly grow, constantly conquer new ground. And that's what God wants. But on this topic of New Year's resolutions, here's something that we should think about as we make New Year's resolutions. In Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Every year, this is the time when people say, this year I'm going to go to church more. This year I am going to be a better financial steward. This year I'm going to eat less and exercise more. This year I'm going to do all of these things. And by the third week of January, they have all fallen away. So I want to encourage you for New Year's, spend this week thinking about what God would like to change in your life this year. Not in anybody else's life, in your life this year. Pray about that, and then when you ask God to help you do it, you do it. You rush to do it. Don't, don't ask God to help you become more sociable and less of an introvert, and then go hide in your house for the month of January. You know, whatever it is, let your feet run to do God's will. Have you ever heard somebody quoting something like this and say, well, then I just won't make a vow? You know, since it's better, since it's better to have not vowed than to break your vow, I won't do it. Friends, all of us are breaking vows every day. How many times have you promised God, I will never do whatever it is again? I'll never get angry with Him and say that again. I'll never do, and you do. The vow is an expression of your heart. And what happens is, God will credit you. He will give you grace if your heart is after fulfilling it. You know, the truth is nobody's ever fulfilled vows in the Bible. I mean, they try, but everybody falls short. He credits you with what you don't have if your heart is right. Now, you can't use that as a license for sin or immorality and sit back and say, well, he knows my heart. He knows it better than you do. <laughs> and uh, you might have a lazy, wicked heart and it needs to be corrected. Uh from here, I would like to go to Exodus. Remember, we're going to talk about Moses' staff this morning. And probably in a way that you're not used to hearing it. What is a staff? What do people use staffs for? A walking stick? I was recently camping and somebody was selling staff, a staff to, as a walking stick. In the Bible, a staff has a unique role, though. Because these were often handed down from a father to a son, 
from that son to his son and on through generations. And what would occur with these walking sticks is they began to be a symbol or an extension of the man and a symbol of authority. See, what are you doing when you hold the stick in your hand and you use it to walk or to, if it has a crook in it, to pull the sheep or to prod something away from it? It's an extension of you. What you can't reach by yourself, it's helping you to, to do, right? Well, what would happen, and everybody knows the 23rd Psalm, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, is these guys would write down the major events of their life on their staffs. They, they would record them on their staff. Uh, this is a, a pretty common practice in biblical days. So that what would happen in David's life? His wife would be pregnant. There would be some life-threatening illness to the mother of the child, and God would heal that baby. That happened in David's life. So David would record that on his staff so that as he was walking on in the days to come and he would come up to some obstacle, literal or figurative, that he didn't think he could overcome or he was worried how he'd overcome, he could look and say, God delivered me last time. So thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's how they comforted. It was not that God's staff extended from heaven. Uh, in, in the Bible, though, also a staff would symbolize especially Moses, righteous requirements of the law. It was a standard. Every time Moses did something, he held out the staff, showing he was an extension of God's arm. Okay, well, getting into that, in Exodus 4. Tell me when you're there. There, there. Y'all all there? You remember that Moses spent 40 years being trained in all the ways of Egypt. Uh, he knew he was a deliverer. He knew he was called. So he walks out one day among his own people and he sees a fight. And he steps between them and, uh, and they say, Hey, who appointed you ruler over us? Well, Moses thought God had appointed him ruler over them at age 40. So then the next day he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he kills him. And he spends 40 years fleeing from Pharaoh and in a desert region, learning to be more moldable by God. 80 years in preparation to begin his calling. That makes all of us feel pretty young, doesn't it? 80 years in preparation. Well, now we're picking up at the point where 80 years of humbling, 80 years of teaching, 80 years of palace life and shepherding, both, you know, 40 and 40, have prepared Moses to do something for God. Moses spent two-thirds of his life preparing for one-third of his life in action. Isn't that interesting? It'd give grace for some of you lifetime students, you know. You guys that like to be in school all the time. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it to the ground. Moses threw it to the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. Brave Moses, huh? Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, uh, this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Basically what's happening is Moses has been commissioned and he said, Hey, well, look. What if they don't believe me? I don't speak so well. I'm not such a good guy. I mean, the last time I was there, I didn't do so good with my calling, right? 
So God wants to encourage him by taking something that is normally an extension of the shepherd's hand. I mean, it's a piece of the shepherd. It carries the events of the shepherd's life on it, and he's going to teach Moses by this. And the very first thing that he has him do is throw this uh, thing down. It becomes a snake, and then pick it back up again. Everything that has to do with the staff has something to do with Jesus in the Bible. I mean, everything. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that, but I don't want to pause there too long. In the last few weeks, we talked one time about if the Son be lifted up, He will draw all men to Him. Um, even as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Do you remember that in John? Jesus was the snake in that uh, scenario on a bronze pole. you all remember that shadow and type? Well, in this one, something that you can look at in the Scripture and see a way that it reflects Jesus is Jesus was that staff, that extension of God's arm, that was thrown down to the ground, was made to look like sin, because the snake always represented sin. The people in Israel weren't necessarily drawn to it. Moses ran from it. And then God reached down, took hold of it again, and it became that extension of God's hand again. You can see that in each one of these signs, but really what you're supposed to be doing as we read this is get an idea for how Moses thought of his staff. Okay. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Again, another sign that speaks of Jesus, but is miraculous. Jesus is spoken of being beside the Father's bosom. Nobody has uh, gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father. He's right here next to the Father, in the cloak, so to speak. When He comes out and presents Himself to mankind, it was leprous. When God, or sinful, leprosy was a, a symbol of sin in the Bible. When He was taken back to God in the cloak and then re-revealed, He was something splendor, uh, full of majesty and splendor. All of these are signs. But this is something that was done in Moses' hand that he carried the staff with. Next one. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, and then Moses goes on to complain about his speech. The Nile was a symbol of life in Egypt. It was considered the source of life. They would take the source of life and turn it to blood in front of the Egyptians. No different than Jesus on the cross. The source of life being a symbol of blood for all of the people. Now, here's why I went through that. What happens next in Moses' life? I mean, it's not a trick question. What are the next major events that happen in his life? He goes into Egypt. He proclaims, let my people go, right? And then he does a few miracles, doesn't he? He does all three of these plus how many plagues? Ten. Almost every plague, it mentions that he took something in his hand and he did something with it. And that was his staff. If he turned the Nile to blood, he took his staff and turned the Nile to blood. If he uh, called down gnats, he took his staff in hand and called down gnats. Almost every plague specifically mentions him taking his staff in his hand. You all all remember that? You agree with that? The staff that God gave him. The staff that God gave him to show miraculous things, Right? So turn with me a few chapters over in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus uh, 17. 
In Exodus 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders and take your staff in your hand with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. The water will come out of it for people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The two names of that place basically mean that they quarreled with the Lord and they questioned, Is the Lord with us or not? So at a time period in Israel's history where they're saying, Is God with us or not? God arranged something. He had Moses take his staff. The staff's getting pretty familiar to Moses by now, huh? Pretty much whenever God wants to do something with Moses, He tells him, Grab your staff. Go and do this. And Moses does that. This is what would be the most natural thing for Moses to do by now. In fact, you might even begin to wonder, if God said, Moses, I want you to go to the grocery store down the street, he probably didn't leave without his staff. This is getting to be something that he uses a lot, huh? A kickstand, if you will. And God told him to. So what happens here? We'll first cover a brief bit of the shadow and type, then we'll go to our point, okay? The brief... Part of the shadow and type is, in Israel, at a time and place where they were wondering, is God with us or not? And they were hungry and thirsty for water. In fact, they've already been fed from heaven with manna and quail. They've not yet received the law. But they're crying out. They don't know whether God's with them or not. And they have the sentence of death in their heart. God always brings them to that place over and over and over because all of the Bible story is about people understanding you're in death and you need deliverance. I mean, that's what the Bible story is about. God has Moses, who is the embodiment of the law, strike a rock. And when the rock is figuratively pierced, life-giving water comes out of it. This should be reminiscent of something that happens in the New Testament. Times when Jesus stands up and says, If any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. And 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says, If you're able to understand it, Jesus was that rock. He was that instrument that would have to be pierced, that would be struck with the law of God, so that life-giving water would come out, okay? But the whole point here is not about that. It's about Moses. Turn with me to Numbers now. This is before the law was given that we just read that. Now we're going to be in Numbers on page 172 in the Thompson chain. Numbers 20. Yeah, I'm discriminating against you that don't have the Thompson chain. Yeah. It's even more fun when you have the uh, Hebrew Bible and the books are in different orders, you know, and sometimes different names. 
Moses is very used to taking a staff in his hand to doing the wonders of God. In fact, to the point where in the movies they portray the staff as, you know, uh, some kind of magical amulet, you know, uh, the staff with which Moses did wonders. Even in that movie, Prince of Egypt, for the kids, they're a little off kilter with the way that they portray the staff. The staff's an extension of the man. It's a symbol. That's, that's all it is. But imagine you're Moses for a minute. Now, in Numbers 19, which we're not going to read, God gives specific regulation. I mean, over and over and over. He says, guys, you're dirty. You are unclean, and you need to be put to death unless you be cleansed with the water of the Lord's cleansing. Again, emphasizing to them that something's wrong with them and they need water to fix it. Now, he just got through telling them that in Numbers 19 and we're in Numbers 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zen and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Isn't that it? I don't want to get off on this too far, but, you know, when other people in the Bible die that were significant characters, there's more than a line mentioned. Sometimes there's a whole eulogy. Tells how they were buried, where they were buried, all of those things. Now, Miriam died, and we get a one-liner, and it is never mentioned again. Is that a bit odd? Miriam had a life of mixed blessing. She often stood and led the women of Israel in joyful celebration. She did beautiful, wonderful things. But she also often grumbled against every male authority in her life. That, that was a real problem. That kept Miriam from being held up as one of the greatest women in Israel. She often criticized Moses and Aaron. And it's funny, this always happens to pastors' wives and also the women they were married to. This keeps Miriam from being somebody who's great in the kingdom and it's worth noting, okay? Not that, oh, well, actually she was. Her husband's name was Her. <laughs> yeah, it, that gets confusing. Her and Miriam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I told Buzz one time, hey, how about her? Speaking of, Moses one time stands with a staff. He holds it up, and her is on one side and Aaron is on the other. And when I was saying, how about her? He kept thinking I was talking about a girl over there, and I was, and I was talking about her and Aaron. Yeah, and there was an Aaron in the room, and there were obviously lots of hers. <laughs> so, anyway. Okay, so there Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. God's just got through in Numbers 19 telling them what all they need water for. Water for this, water for that. And if you read it, it's incredibly tedious. I mean, you pretty well need to be cleansed with water for everything that you've ever done. You know, you pop a zit, you've got to go get water. You, whatever it is in your life, you need water. Now there was no water for the community. God set the stage for these people to see a great need and then that it needs to be fulfilled. And He does that in your life. He does that all of the time. He'll bring you to a place where you recognize you need Him and you don't have what you need yourself. So He's done that to Israel. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Now, at other times, they call Egypt the furnace of affliction, the place of slavery where their blood and mortar built Egypt. All of these things are said about Egypt. But all of a sudden, because of a momentary need, like Esau and his hunger, 
they're willing to call the whole place terrible and wish they could go back to the prison they came from. You know, Christians get saved out of horrible, horrible situations. Go for years full of bliss and glee, you know. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't everything wonderful? Then we encounter some tribulation. We encounter some things where it doesn't look like our every need's met right away. And all of a sudden we do a horrible thing. Well, when I was lost, I never had a problem finding a date. Well, when I was lost, I always earned enough money. When I was lost, I never would have taken that from my boss. You know, all of these things. Paul says it's shameful to even discuss the things down in darkness. We read about Israel and we laugh at them. Then we go do the same thing in our lives. Uh, It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Why do you think God would take them to a place where there was no water to drink and tell them they needed water? Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff. And you and your brothers, a brother, Aaron, gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Does this sound at all like a story that we've just read? But let me tell you, these occur 40 years apart. The first time the people are quarreling and there's a need for water, and God did this before they even went to Mount Sinai, to teach them, when you're in death, I am the source. When you need something, I am the source. Don't quarrel against the leader. He just represents me. He taught them that very time. In fact, in the next chapter, it says, God, or Moses, God instructed Moses about a piece of wood, and he made water sweet for Israel. He, they taught them. Now we're 40 years later a whole new generation of Israelites. We are back at a rock in the same place and they are quarreling again doing the same thing. Okay? Sorry to give you hope if you keep finding yourself back at a place with the Lord where you've promised you won't do it. You've promised that you will do it. Whatever it is, sin, omission, commission, however it works. And you're saying, I can't tell him this again. I mean, I feel like such an idiot. You know, he knows I'm going to screw up and do it again. Or whatever it is. This ought to give you hope. But God tells Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron speak to the assembly. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. He gave Moses a specific instruction. Last time he said, strike the rock in front of them. This time he said, speak to the rock before their eyes. That's really important. You know, he didn't tell him to go off and do this at night. Didn't tell him to grab the elders and go do it. He said, I want you and the leadership of Israel to do this before their eyes. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Sounds like he's a little wearied of having to deal with their nagging, huh? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and He showed Himself holy among them. It's the same place that it occurred before. 
Why did God first, before we get into Moses, why did God the first time have him uh, strike the rock and the next time say, speak to the rock? And both times it was to be displayed before the people's eyes. See, God had a plan that Moses wasn't aware of. He was a man just like us. I'll turn to something. Y'all don't have to turn there. I just want to read this so that you will know I'm not making it up. In 1 Corinthians 10, listen to this words, 10.6. Now these things, and he was speaking about that rock, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. The things in the Old Testament were examples for us to be able to look at and learn. Well, if they were examples, they had to be done a certain way. God wanted His staff, the staff in Moses' hand, the righteous requirements of the law, to strike the rock once and life-giving water come out. The next time, He would not be stricken because the rock is Jesus. He wouldn't get stricken again. The law would simply speak of Jesus and bring life to people. You see, at His first coming, Jesus was stricken by the law. The law said, if any man's hung on a cross, he's cursed. He's stricken by it. Everybody looked and thought it was God's will to crush him. But at the second coming, at the revival of the Jewish people, they would, the law that is theirs would speak of Jesus and life-giving water would come out. Wouldn't be hurt again. They're looking on the one they've already pierced. So this is what God's intent was. That's not what we're teaching though today. That's just something I wanted you to know. I want you to think about Moses. Okay? Because it's easy for us to look and think about theological things, to embrace them intellectually and think, wow, we know the deep things of God. I want you to think about this from an experiential standpoint. If every time you had done something for God, He said, take that staff and go and do something with that staff, what do you think happened to Moses here? God said, take the staff. I want you to bring the staff, but go and speak to the rock. He did just what you guys did, just what I did. He thought he heard from God. He and Aaron set out. They took the staff. Then on the way, he started thinking about it. He told me to bring my staff. Last time I was here, I had to hit the rock. Are you sure God really said, said, speak to it? And that doubt began to dwell in him until it affected his actions. Now, ultimately, we know that the law doesn't inherit the promised land. We know that. And that's part of this shadow in type 2, and that's a whole other thing. But Moses got there, and he screwed up. He ruined a shadow and type that God was trying to teach here. Now, can you think of anybody else in the Bible that did something like that and what happened to them? It's in David's day as the ark was being carried up onto Mount Zion. That ark had to be carried on the shoulders of men. And they carried it with donkey, or oxen. And somebody reached out to touch the ark. And it got struck dead because God was trying to portray a, a shadow and type of the way that the glory would enter Israel and that it would be carried on the shoulders of men by way of four Gospels and a covenant. That's what he was trying to teach. And so God prevented it from being done wrong. Here, he didn't die. He just didn't enter the land. As we're reaching a time of New Year's resolutions, though, as we're reaching a time where we're asking God for vision for our lives, here's the, here's the hard part for you. God has moved in your life in a certain way. You may have always done things like this and you think it works fine for you. That's just the way that I am. God often for a reason you don't understand, because of a bigger picture, wants you to do things differently. And people naturally resist change at every turn. If you sit in these seats and every week, and then when I come in, and I see you all sitting there, and I say, guys, I'd like you all to pick a different seat. Oh, you may do it, 
But the first thought in your heart is, well, i got to get up. I mean, what's this about? There's nothing wrong with my seat. You naturally resist change. Not having any idea that there's a bigger plan at work. This happens all of the time. God couldn't use me to do that. I'm a salesman. I'm not an accountant. God couldn't use me to do that. I mean, He knows I'm not a people person. All of this was displayed in Moses' life. Every bit of it. Everything. And Moses is pretty well the type of Jesus in the Bible. I mean, he's held up higher than any other figure to the point where all Israel had their hopes set on Moses, not on Jesus. And listen to one of the things that he said. No, Lord, I don't speak well. I can't do that. God had to remind him, I made man's mouth, Moses. You know, he had to give him a crutch, an aid to help him. Then he did all of these wonderful miracles. So Moses gets used to doing miracles with the staff. But when God wants him to do something without it, he sins and can't. I say all of this to encourage you in your life as part of life-changing ministries or whatever ministry you're a part of, you need to be looking for what God would want to do new among you. I have this vision of a board with different shaped holes in it. And you know, you heard the expression, you can't put a square block in a round hole. I don't believe I can accept that. It's true. God wants us to reshape ourselves. He wants us to embrace his change so that we fit right where he wants us to be. Buzz used to say he didn't want a church with square wheels, one that couldn't move, right? He wanted a church with round wheels so that it could move. But the reality is all of us are settling into our places where we think God can use us and we're resistant to anything else. I'm asking you this year to embrace being a little bit uncomfortable, to doing things you wouldn't normally do because there might be a big beautiful picture that God is trying to portray and your stubbornness is the only thing keeping it from happening. I found out something through just watching human behavior, watching the church, watching my own life, watching patients where I work. It's not just the person's resistance to change. If Matt is a really talented woodsman, we went camping here recently, and he's a pretty talented woodsman, What tends to happen with our roles is, well, Matt's good at it, so Matt does it. Everybody else stands and watches. There's a real problem with that. What if God's desire is that I become good at it, but I'm used to just standing by and watching Matt? The Bible says that forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. Forceful men. And that from the days of John the Baptist till now, when Jesus said it, the kingdom had been forcefully advanced. You know what forceful is in this scenario? Forceful is willing to do what others are not willing to do. Willing to love when others are grumbling. Willing to try when others are scared to try. Turn with me to Matthew real quick. Now hang on with me for a few more minutes. I don't know yet. I'm working without a net today. That'd make a lot of people really uncomfortable, huh? Me too. Oh, yeah. Preach them two or three times. Okay, this would be Matthew 25. In your Thompson chain, this is page 1102. Y'all, the reason I'm harping on this change and wanted to show you a great figure in the Bible... Somebody get it wrong because of the repetition. Was he wrong when he had used his staff that way all of the other times? 
No, it's exactly what God said to do. And God said, take your staff with you this time, Moses. Isn't it a perfectly natural assumption that he would do with it what he did the last time? What he did every other time? We do this all of the time. Well, the last time God had me in this kind of scenario, this is how I handled it. And it must be the right way to do it. We need to be willing to accept whatever new thing God might do. In uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all of the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Sounds pretty much like you want to be on this right side, huh? You want to be one that gets the inheritance, the thing that was prepared before the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these, brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I want to tell you something real quick before we finish this thought. That eternal fire was prepared for who? The The devil and his angels. It was never meant that a human being, somebody who was made in the image of God, would miss the kingdom of God. It was never intended for that. God did not set this up as some kind of sick, twisted plan to burn a certain number of the people. He desired that all men be saved. And in this little parable, you'll find out the difference between those who earn His favor and those that don't. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What is the difference between these two groups of people? Is it what they believed? Was it their logic? Was it what they thought? It's what they did or didn't do. I mean, that is the sole difference. How many times have you not done something for God because it's not what you would normally do? I mean, Jennifer's the one that usually goes and serves or makes clothes or fixes food for people. Not me. I mean, why would I do that? Or, you know, Bobby's the one that's talented fixing things. I mean, why would I do that? Even though God's tugging at your heart to do it, you're clinging to the staff that you have always used, using it in the way that you have always used it, scared, letting fear keep you from trying something new. The difference between the sheep and the goats are not those who succeeded 
in their task. There are those who tried and those who failed to try. See, there is no way that they fed everybody who ever uh, they encountered. There's no way that they clothed everybody. We know that's a human impossibility, that they visited everybody that was ever in prison. Of course they didn't, but they tried. And although they may be feeding and that's something they're good at, when they encountered somebody who was in prison, they went and did that. I think that the church is hindered by something. Same thing most human beings are hindered by. It's a paradigm. This is the way that I've always done things and it's the way that I'll always do them. I'm asking you to shatter it this year. If you are normally not the kind of person that would be a social butterfly, go plant yourself in the middle of a big group of people and try. If you are normally not the kind of person that would embrace a stranger, it it gives you a hard time, do it. Find something that you believe would affect the kingdom in a positive way and grow this year. Stretch your borders out. Everybody wants the prayer of Jabez to be true in their life, right? Lord, I, I pray that you extend my territory. We want all of those things. That doesn't happen through prayer. I mean, prayer is a part of it. Prayer prepares you. It might do the work in other people's lives preparing them. All of those things happen through action. If you want to grow, it's required that you do something different today than you did yesterday. Otherwise, you're just maintaining. And you know, on the scale, if there's a backsliding and there's a growing, where is maintaining? In the middle. And that's what God says He wants to throw up out of His mouth. He hired you. He redeemed you. He purchased you, all of those shadows and types in the Bible, for one purpose, that you would produce fruit in His kingdom. I mean, He says it. Some 30, some 60, and a hundredfold. He hired you to get something out of you. Even the parables about the uh, money that He invested, the talents. He gave you something to get something from you. And the guy that just gave Him back what He got, he, he got uh, taken outside the camp. He gave you things to get something from you. Don't bury them by being scared to try new things. So I preached that whole thing today to say this year, if you're called to prison ministry, do some nursing homes too. If you're called to nursing homes, do something with kids. Get out of your element of comfort and see if God will take up your slack. Because He didn't call you to do what you're capable of doing. He called you to do what you are incapable of doing and He can do through you. I know very well what that's like. So does Matthew. Wait till He tells you to go start a church in a foreign land where you don't know anybody. You know? Something I am encouraged about though, the last people on earth that ever receive the gospel, that ever are receptive to somebody with a calling, are their own family members. And look around and hear. All we've got are family members. Jesus' mother and brothers thought he was insane. They thought he was crazy during his ministry. His hometown where everybody knew him well, he couldn't even do any miracles. There was no faith there. A couple times he almost got stoned. God's caused favor with our family members. Let's love each other enough to not accept mediocrity from each other, to not accept that that's just the way Eric is or that's just the way that David is or Matthew is. Let's expect everybody to be like Jesus. Give them grace when they're not making it, but always push and encourage each other. What do you think it means when the Bible says, spur one another on to good things? What do you think that means? Spur one another on. Do you want to be spurred? I don't. But the Bible tells us to spur one another. 
Well, there's all kind of ways of doing that. Some are snatched from the fire and some are gently encouraged out of it. And just because you usually snatch people out of the fire doesn't mean that's the staff you'll use every time, does it? That's just how God is. So y'all stand up. Let's pray. We're going to be willing to change this year. We're going to try new things. I say stand up and pray. We can ask questions. We can do... I do have one. Yeah, ask. When you were reading in Numbers 20, you know, talking about Moses striking the rod twice. I mean, striking with the rock twice. I've read that many times and thought, okay, he's come out to the rock the second time. He hits it again. So that's a total of two times. But it doesn't say that. It says in Numbers 20, he hits it twice. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It didn't work the first time. You know why it didn't work the first time? It's not what God told him to do. You know why it worked the second time? Because God greatly cared about those people and the sin of the one guy wasn't going to cause them all to die. It's grace. It's grace. And it comes in number two, which is how God expresses His covenants. It's a grace covenant. It's not based on a perfection of the law. You know, I screw up every day. Sometimes I make it a day without an enormous screw up. But screw up on a regular basis... And God still honors the calling that He's put on my life. That happens. I make no effort, nor does Matthew, to hide a part of our life from anyone else so that they'll look at us as more holy. I'm convinced that if people see both your folly and the anointing on you, then they will see a life that's obtainable. They'll see a way that God can work in common, ordinary men. Now, here's the challenge to the church, though. You have got to be willing to let people see you in error. You've got to be willing to step out and get it wrong, to pray for somebody that doesn't get out of a wheelchair, to, to do things and not always succeed. Once you're free from that kind of fear, once you're free from having to be perfect or get it right every time, then you can have the courage to try new things and succeed. The church is supposed to be an inventive, ingenious, overcoming powerful machine. We really should be the kind of people that the world could bring any problem to and we will find a way to solve it because we have God's mind in us. But too often we act like the world, protecting what is ours, being scared to venture outside of it for fear of loss, fear of loss of reputation, fear of loss of respect, fear of loss. If you really did encounter the Christ in the way that I encountered the Christ, you have already lost everything. Anything else you have is something that He's giving to you on loan for a while. Your very life's not yours. When we put the gospel in those perspectives, it's a whole lot easier to do something new, isn't it? Now, some of you, it's easy to embrace new things. Others, it's very hard. You know, explore every area of your life. This is the time of year when, when the new year would come. They'd go through their house and they would search every corner of their house inspecting it for yeast. I taught you all about the destructive mold in houses. They did the same thing. We're supposed to be inspecting our life, asking God, what would you like to see done differently? What don't you like? What, what would be more pleasing to you? What new area can I branch out into? And you know what? If you're willing, he'll do an amazing amount of new stuff in you. you know, if this year looks like last year, you failed somehow. Now, even if last year was good, if this year looks just like last year, then you have failed somehow because you're not growing. We have got to be growing in the kingdom. They should never be the same, not when we're 90 years old. And uh, please don't ever tell me, ever, that's just the way that I am. I don't even hear it, okay? Let's pray. Mighty God, 
We love you and we embrace your life-changing power. Lord, we believe that you've given us a staff, a calling, something that is an extension of you in us. Lord God, teach us to view it how you would want us to, something fresh and new every day. Today's bread from heaven, not last week's. Lord, speak to us fresh new vision of what you would have us to do in the coming year, how we should interact. And Lord, help us to change and grow in the way that you would want us to. Lord, I pray your blessing upon these people that traveled here, those that can't be here today. Lord, I pray that we would be the fragrance of life among the lost. Jesus, that they would see us and see something that they want to imitate instead of seeing something that they're embarrassed of. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.